Good morning, church, and good morning to all of those of you who are joining us online. This is the day that you prayed for all summer. The rain finally came. Here, here it is, and we will have green grass by fall. Uh, among those champions of, of nature is this friend that I'm going to introduce you to on the screen. You recognize him, of course, Candor Cadensis, one of Canada's national emblems, the energetic handsomely named Canadian beaver, propelling himself through the wilderness by the force of his two front teeth. If ever there were a reason to suspect God has a sense of humor, it's the Canadian beaver, isn't it? It just kind of, you can imagine saying, I'm just going to make a beaver just because I can. <laughs> uh, one of the beaver's most notable features is their ability to fell trees, uh, the size of which is sometimes astounding by just the force of their jaw. And of course, their industrious little engineers who will drag these things or fell them in just such a way so that on my favorite hiking trail, the river that I look forward to passing in the spring diminishes itself to the form of just a little trickle or a creek. And at first I thought when I saw it that it must be, it must be um, the uh, Department of, of, of Natural Services in Canada manipulating the lake levels. Uh, but no, it was the beavers with their ingenuity damming up the flow of the river. There is nothing that alters the course of a river so completely as the presence of a dam. And I'm told, I've read, that it can take three to five years for an ecosystem to recover once that has happened. The output of a river downstream is dependent entirely on the flow of the river, the quality of the water upstream. And that image, the Bible says, is much like what God does in our lives. Way back at the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 2. When God imagines his paradise, his good earth, we're given this description of the garden. It says in Genesis 2 verse 10 that there was a river watering the garden, flowing from Eden. And from there it separated into four headwaters and it flowed throughout the entire earth. That was God's sustaining, nourishing presence for his paradise. And in that pristine place that God created for people to live, the abundance, the outflow of water was surely a sign of life and vitality and goodness. That theme is captured and it's repeated multiple times by the writers of the Psalms, the, the worship textbook of the Old Testament. Verses like these ones, Psalm 46, there is a river, one whose streams delight the city of God, that holy place where God the Most High dwells. And there in the very closing pages of the Bible, if you go from the, the, the beautiful beginning to the climactic end, the very last page, Revelation 22, says, And there an angel revealed to me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, flowing through the middle of the streets of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life. Is it any wonder then that Jesus, when he is looking for a metaphor to latch onto, when explaining what life looks like with God, grabs the language of the river? He says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, there will be rivers of living water flowing 
from within them, from inside out. That's how our faith expresses itself. What's poured into us spills out of us. Unless, of course, we have the spiritual equivalent of one of these guys at work in our life. Damming up the flow. uh, Turning us, instead of a conduit, into a pit. Where what goes in never comes out. You know, the lowest point on earth, in terms of sea level, is an area in Israel called the Dead Sea. Do you know why it's dead? Because everything that flows in there gets trapped and can never get out. And the water just bakes away in the heat of the Mediterranean sun and reduces it to this place where the salt content is so high in the water that no living thing can survive. If, uh, if we turn into a pit, it doesn't matter how well connected we are to God above or to, to each other in Christ. If what goes into us never gets out of us, that's how churches die. Uh, That's how the passion for faith begins to die. This fall, we've been exploring what it means to start again, again. Uh, You might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago that we had planned a series way back in January with great excitement and fanfare. We were out of the gates. This was going to be the year. The shackles were off. We're going to get back to doing the things that we love doing. And then COVID crept back in again. You remember what happened at Christmas time. And so we had to, we had to throttle back a little bit. So here we are in the fall. Again, that same feeling of excitement. Things are moving again. God has a new mission for us again. So we are starting again, again. Uh, And as we follow him the best that we can, we recognize that we are always at danger, in danger of getting stuck. And something can stop up the flow. Fortunately, we serve a God who throughout scripture finds people in that state and says, it's okay. We'll just start again. He did it in Egypt. He did it way back in Eden. He did it from the very primordial days of human history. He does it still today, again and again. At Babel, Egypt, and throughout history, God says, you can start again. So as we start again in the fall, this is kind of a rallying cry back to who we are and why we do what we do. And if you remember nothing else from the sermon, I want you to remember these three words, up, in and out. Say those. Up, in, and out. Now look at the person beside you and say this to them. Get out. Get out. Yeah. If you remember nothing else from today, remember that. That is the message for today. Get out. We have used this little triangle as a shorthand of understanding, way of understanding how God is at work through his people. There's always that upward dimension, our hearts rising towards the one who made us and God reaching down, revealing himself up is about faith. And we are going to spend the next six weeks, as Pastor Sheldon talked about, exploring how we cultivate that upward relationship. And don't be afraid of the title called to be saints. How many of you are comfortable using that word as a self description? I feel like a saint. Now, none of us feel that way, right? Okay, Tim. Oh, Remy. Okay, we've got a few. These are the theologically wise among us who know that that word that we have reserved for a pantheon of those who we revere was actually applied to all God's people. In fact, when you get to your New Testament and start reading, whenever you see the word God's people, the word behind that is actually the word saint. But we got so afraid of it that we stopped translating it that way. 
We have those taglines that we use around here. They're the ones flashing on our sign. Everybody's welcome. Yeah, we like that. Every church has that on their sign. Doesn't mean people feel that, but we like to say it. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect, we say. We like that one too, because it feel like, well, that means I fit in. I'm not perfect. But then we forget the third one. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything is possible, which means that nobody is perfect might describe me today, but I sure hope tomorrow is better than today and that we are all on a trajectory where we are being made perfect. The word for that, incidentally, is the word sanctify or sanctification, the same root word for saint. So don't be afraid of the word saint. That is the journey that we are on. It's our way of saying God doesn't leave us the way he finds us. Thank God for that. That tomorrow is meant to be better than yesterday. All of that is to say, don't be afraid of the series. Walk with us through those six weeks as we explore what it means to have God take us from where we are to where he wants us to be in six different areas of our lives called to be saints. We're going to spend those six weeks exploring the up dimension of faith. We spent our last teaching time looking at the in dimension of faith. And so today, get out. (laughs) We're going to explore the out dimension. But let me just remind you as we get started that Jesus lived this. We, We don't just make this stuff up. Jesus lived an up, in, and out Life. There are lots of times where you can read the story of Jesus in the Bible where he retreats. He seeks out solitude and prayer. He draws one or two trusted companions to be with him as he tries to both maintain and, and, and celebrate and prosper that relationship that he has with God, the up. But very early on in the ministry of Jesus, in the first two or three chapters in all of the Gospels, something happens. It happens very quickly. He moves from the up dimension to the in dimension. Jesus, God incarnate, saying, listen, if I'm going to live a life here, I don't want it just to be connected to God. That's not enough. I don't want private connection. I also need to build community with other people. The Christian life is not, Pastor Sheldon said it, a solo affair. And so he gathers people around him very close. Initially, the 12 who were designated as disciples, a a group of really closely knit women who traveled with him everywhere. And after only three and a half years, these fallible followers would become the foundation of a church which you and I have inherited. We are the recipients of that early community 2,000 years later. Then there was another group, a group of, of 50 people or more who gathered around Jesus, experienced the up, enjoyed the in, but very quickly, automatically, almost reflexively, what poured into them began to leak out. And so they started to go outward. In his ministry, Jesus was always meticulous about the out component, moving towards who were probably on the outermost fringes of what people thought it meant to be out. Samaritan woman those afflicted with contagious diseases, people the rest of the world pushed to the edges. You remember how a few weeks ago we talked about a simple way of applying 1 Corinthians 13, the, the, the great love text of the Bible, is by expanding your circle. We live in this circle that says, I will laugh with those who are in my circle when they're going through good times, and I will weep with those in my circle when they're going through hard times. Jesus seems to push the boundaries out and say, just just expand your circle. 
get out to the edges? And can you weep with those who are out there on the margins when they're going through hard times? And can you laugh with those who are out there on the edges when they're going through great times? Expand your circle. That's what Jesus did. He pushes to the edges. A Samaritan traveler becomes God's faithful champion. So now he's not just the Samaritan. He is, for all time, the good Samaritan. A tax collector, corrupt, becomes the poster child for generosity. He says in Matthew 25, if, if you want to know what eternity is like and, and what the people are like who, who spend eternity with God, here's, it, here's what it looks like. They're the people whose up and in is so strong that they're out expanded to include those who are hungry and thirsty and homeless and shivering and sick and alone. And because the up and in was so strong, the very first thing that they did almost reflectively was feed and give drink and shelter and clothing and visit those people. That was the key difference, what they did and did not do. When the rivers of God's goodness and compassion and grace were flowing into them, it couldn't help but flow out of them. It was instinctive. Now listen, to be clear, this isn't something that Jesus discovered uh, and introduced to the world for the first time. This was written into the story of God's people from the very beginning. God put the framework in place reminding people to start again, and as they start, follow him up and in and out. Let me give you a passage from a, a book of the Bible. It's Well, it's a favorite in my life and in our family. We named our, our son after the book of Joshua. Guess what we named him? Just checking to see if you were awake. Yeah. Joshua chapter 8, verse 35 says, There was not a word of everything that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not in turn read to the whole gathering of Israel, including women and children and all of the aliens living among them. Aliens, not, but aliens, um, refugees, foreigners, strangers. Right? Yeah. It's easy to miss the last part of the verse. Right? If you can imagine a, a, a ladder of, of, of priority and significance and importance in society, guess who's hanging on the very bottom of the ladder? Women and children and aliens. And yet it was key, it was critically important that those who are way out on the edges of normal society be included in the middle and the background of the story is, I mean, it's quite staggering. For, for 400 years, this is a group of people who had lived in slavery. That's all they'd known. And finally, they break the bonds of slavery, only to get lost in the wilderness for 40 more years. So all they have in their recent history is slavery and a wandering sense of being homeless. And at last, finally, they arrive in a safe place. This is their land. This is going to be home. And there'd be every indication that you would want to do what we all do when we move into a new home. Make it feel like we just hunker down. We're still in boxes. I mean, we haven't got time for all these aliens and all these people out at the edges. But they don't do that. They're, the membrane of their society was always semi-permeable. People were coming in. They were, they were going out. They were living out the commandments that God had given them. Like this one. Verse, or Deuteronomy 15.8, said, Be open-handed and freely give to others what they need. 
generosity without a grudging heart. That framework has been part of the fabric of God's people from the very beginning. One of the truest marks of a church that's enjoying health, it's not a big building with glamorous fixtures and well-appointed rooms. Show me their mission budget. What do you do? How do you live this out? Fast forward now to Acts chapter 2. This is day one in the life of the church. This is the first snapshot that we're given to what the world looked like after the life, death, resurrection, ministry of Jesus had concluded. Many read it for us. So if you have your Bibles, we are in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want you to listen to the dynamics of the up, the in, and then the out life. They committed themselves to the teaching. That's the up. To life together, meals and prayers. That's the in. This up and in lifestyle. But look what comes next. And then they sold what they owned. They pooled their resources together so that others' needs could be met. That, of course, is the, is the out. And it's inevitable when the up and the in are healthy that the out is also healthy. And I love the translation that comes of what, of what happens next. There's a little version of the Bible called The Message. It says, people in general liked what they saw. I'll bet they did. They liked what they saw. There was nothing like this in the world. Oh, there were lots of people who were about the up. You know, religious people. There were even people about the in. Like, I love my tribe. I'm going to stay with my tribe until I die. But nobody's getting into my tribe. And if you wrong my tribe, look out. An angry papa coming in your direction. There were lots of ups. There were lots of ins. But the up, in, and the out together had this magnetic pull to it. And Acts says that day by day, their numbers began to grow. In a very real sense, the litmus test, the quality of the up and of the in, is the impact of the out. The ability to imagine people's lives, especially lives that are not like ours. To have compassion that moves towards people and doesn't push them away. The whole world is having to relearn that right now. For two and a half years, we have looked at people with fear in our eyes. And we have distanced ourselves. It takes an act of creativity and an act of faith to be able to intentionally move towards people, not away from them. To have the kind of lifestyle that allows us to be in the world giving people a taste of who God is. I think that's a great description for for what we're about. We just want to give people a taste. Somehow, if you could find what others have found in Jesus, I think you would get along great and you would love it. Give them a taste. There was a book by a writer named Gregory Boyle called Tattoos on the Heart. I've quoted this story before, but, but I did it in January, and uh, there was nobody here. Remember, we closed everything. It's just like me and the camera. Maybe some of you saw it, but if you didn't, I think it's a great story and a great illustration. So this is Gregory Boyle, Tattoos of the Heart. Boyle is a Catholic priest. He works among among gang members in Los Angeles. Fascinating book. And he deals intentionally with what he calls, again, the up, the in, and the out. He tells a story about a day he got a phone call from a local social worker who worked uh, told him on the phone about this kid named Anthony, 19 years old, just out of prison. His parents had long ago disappeared into a maelstrom of heroin in prison time, and at 19 years old, he was 
finally getting out of jail, fending for himself, selling little jars or vials of PCP on the street to raise enough money to get something to eat. Father Boyle, living the up and the in lifestyle, he's a priest, goes and meets with Anthony, begins to build a bit of a rapport with him, and, and says, one day we were leaning up against the car. Our conversation drifted towards the, what do you want to do with your life thing? And Anthony looks back and responds, says, you know, I, I want to be a mechanic. Don't know a thing about cars, but I sure would like to learn. Father Boyle narrates what happens next. Here's what he says. My mechanic, Dennis, on Brooklyn Avenue, was something of a legend in the barrio. Dennis could fix any car. He was tall, pole-thin, a Japanese-American in his near 60s. He was a chain smoker. Dennis was not a man of few words. He was a man of no words at all. He just smoked. (laughs) You bring your car in, complaining of some noise under the hood. You hand the keys to Dennis. He'd just stand there with a cigarette dangling from his lips. He'd take the keys, and when you returned the next day, he'd give you your car, purring as it should. There were no words exchanged in the entire transaction. (laughs) So I go to Dennis, and I plead my case. Look, Dennis, I say, sitting in his cramped office, smoke-filled, I want you to hire this kid, Anthony. He doesn't know anything about cars, but he's eager to learn, and I think that he'll do well for you. Dennis just kind of stares back at me that long stream of ashes hanging off the end of his cigarette, deciding whether to jump off the cliff or not. And so I redouble my efforts. I tell Dennis, hey, this won't be just one job for the homie. There could be a ripple effect here, the entire neighborhood. Again, just long drags on a cigarette and a silent stare, nothing. Dennis just continues to fill his lungs up with smoke. Finally, I just gave up and I shut up and... Dennis takes one last long drag on his cigarette, releases it into the air, smoke wafting around in front of him. And once every trace of smoke is let out, he looks at me, and this is the only thing he says that day. I will teach him everything I know. One sentence. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will teach you everything that I know. Everything that has been poured into me will flow through me into you. Go into all the world, Jesus said, and as you go, teach them everything you know. To start again for a new season. To remind ourselves that the up and the in are are crucial, but they're only really authentic if there is an outward expression of what that means, individually in our lives, collectively, when that happens, there's something in the church that that just ratchets itself up a level. And you begin to believe that it's not just a tagline on our sign, that really all things are possible. The problem is always that the river can get dammed up and the up and out can't be as healthy as we thought they would be and the and the the out is just non-existent. But there are ways of dealing with that. The two biggest barriers, I think, to a healthy, outward-focused lifestyle, the one that that keeps us trapped in our little cocoons, are are comfort and privilege. 
stepping tones of comfort where if you're like me, sometimes I realize the majority of my conversation is focused on what I will eat next, on what activity I'll get involved with next, and on what I'll do on my next vacation. Privilege and wealth and education, they they can prevent us from exercising the creativity that allows us to imagine our lives profoundly different from the way they are. To see what life might be like at the edge of the circle. A man named Steve Garber, if you haven't discovered him, wrote a great book called The Fabric of Faithfulness. And he says that those who are following Christ need to remember that education was never meant to be a passport to privilege, but a pathway to serving. I mean, let's be honest. You and I, we have opportunities that would stagger people in most of the world. A little piece in the New York Times. Put it this way. One delusion among successful people is that they have triumphed just because of hard work and intelligence. In fact... Their big break came when they were conceived in middle-class American families who loved them, read them stories, nurtured them with little league sports and library cards and music lessons. They were programmed for success by the time they were zygotes. And yet many are oblivious of their own advantages and other people's disadvantages. Comfort and privilege will shrink our world. And they will not allow us to see outside the circle. And what they really do is shrink God to fit into the confines of our world. So that our prayers revolve primarily about how to add some extra padding and comfort to the world that we already inhabit. And the attention and the resources and the efforts of the church go towards coddling and cuddling those who are already saved. And the out gets all jammed up. But not here. When Jesus sends out his 12 initially in Matthew 10, listen to what he says. Matthew 10, verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God is near. What a great message. The kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick. We like that one. Raise the dead. Maybe a little challenging, but boy, we like that one too. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. It's been poured into you. Freely give. Let it out of you. Or as one translator put it, go to the lost and the confused people right here in your own neighborhood. Tell them the kingdom is here. Bring health to the sick, raise the dead, touch those who are untouchable, kick out the demons. You've been treated generously, so live generously. In other words, you can make a difference in people's lives. Do we still believe that? That it's possible to make a difference in people's lives, physically, spiritually, that you can make the kingdom tangible, that the good news can be really good? That's a question that we stop and ask around here a lot. What is the good news? What is it about the good news that makes it good? What would make it good for the people that you interact with on a daily basis? Youth, what is the good news for your friends in the classroom or in the lunchroom or on the courts? What would be life-changing for them? Adults, what is the good news for those you share a cubicle with 
or an office space or on the other side of a Zoom call? What would be life-changing for them? We know what the bad news is, and we lead with it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of course we know that. Everybody knows that. We know the problems in the world. But what is the good news? What would the good news be for a shopkeeper who hung a store closing sign in his window over the past two years? What would be good? What would be the good news for a teacher walking anxiously into their first classroom or for a student, a teenager, walking into high school for the first time? What's the good news for those who live in million-dollar mansions in Loren Park or who live in subsidized housing or even the shelter right here on Cawthor Road? What's good news? What is the good news that will make the worst thing in their life feel manageable and the best thing in their life pale in comparison to what God still has? What's the good news? And yeah, we know the theological answer. The good news is that Jesus came to earth to show us what God is like, to preach the good news of the kingdom, to instill kingdom values in those who follow him, to offer up his life as forgiveness for sins, to conquer death, to restore our relationship to God. We know all that. That's the theological answer. It's important. Why would that be good news for somebody out there? What is the good news for your neighbors? It seems to me that it's here the church begins to shape its understanding of why it exists and who it exists for and how it exists. And it's why again and again we will keep drawing ourselves back to the person of Jesus. A relationship, not a religion with all of its trappings. To this up and in and out life into the promise of the kingdom because the kingdom will always be good news for a weary world. The kingdom, which was simply Jesus' shorthand for what life would be like when the will and purposes of God are enacted in people's lives and in the world. That's the kingdom. Will always be good news. God's people living together as they were intended to live. And to a world that is splintered apart by self-centeredness and frustrated with pandemic restrictions, Jesus still says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I guarantee you that's good news to people who are worn out. The message of the kingdom will always be good news to a weary world. Remember what Jesus said next? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me. Not my cushion underneath me. Not my blanket over top me. A a yoke is an instrument of work. A symbol of purposeful work. Of cooperative work. Two people side by side. Walking in lockstep. In rhythm together. Maybe Jesus is inviting us to think uh, of walking with him into the places that we already go, but with intent. What would be good news in this place today? What would an outward life look like? As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. Those words get the hearts racing of those who want to live up and in and out lives. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Let's do something before we close. I want you to inhale, just one deep, long breath. Hold it. 
and let it out. Feel good? Let's do it again. The church exists in the rhythms of breathing. In the inhaling and the exhaling of God's people. In the gathering and the scattering of the saints. We inhale people into the presence of God. We try and cultivate the up. We try and enjoy the fellowship of the in. But then we breathe ourselves back out again. When we do that, we recognize that the church is an expression of God's own heart. Because God has always been on mission. The church that bears his name is is on mission as well. God is ascending God. We are ascending church. We are ascent people. Again, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit sends us out. And for those who, who get that understanding, up, in, and out, for those who, who realize that followers of Jesus don't belong to a church, that they are the church, it changes everything. They acknowledge, this isn't a pride thing, this is just a reality, that where they are, the church is spiritually present. I mean, look around the room. Can you imagine that every spot where every person in this church may be this week, the church will be present. And as long as we're not jammed up, the Spirit will do some pretty marvelous things and there will be good news given. And it's that thereness, that out thereness that the world really needs. Not pontificating from inside our walls about everything that's gone wrong, but the living out there about everything that God can make right. For God so loved the world. You know the verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, Jesus must have really cold-cocked Nicodemus with that verse. And if you stop and think about it, it's probably just as astounding to us. Because the religious leaders of his day, much like religious people this day, would not have expected that. For God so loved the church, yes, the saved, the saintly, the people who are already aligned. That makes sense. But God so loved the whole world, that would have been jarring. But Jesus declares that the redemptive mission of God is focused squarely with the whole world in its crosshairs. And when people see God and see that part of him, they see the world in the same way. And so we keep our vision focused on that, up, in, and out. And it allows us through, through Christ-anointed eyes to see everybody, even those at the edges, as part of our own circle. And then we who are followers of Jesus, we see that we're not just a group of people called Together, we are a group of people who were called out to walk in lockstep with our missionary God. It's then that the church really becomes the body and the bride of Christ. So let's pray that that happens, that we never stray far from that high calling. Join me as we pray. Father, you've given us our bodies, these small containers into which you pour eternal things. And there's just not enough room to hold it. So we need to spill over. And I pray that you would help us where there are log jams in our lives 
so that what we receive from you and from each other would be so authentic that what flows out of us is unstoppable. We pray for those around us. Pray that you would give us eyes that are compassionate and creative so that we can see those. Those who struggle for a home or for resources or opportunities or education. God, instead of seeing those as sources of separation, we see them as a place for unity in the family of God. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to to bring a little bit of good news into their lives. We thank you, though, most of all, for the incarnation of Jesus, for the way your own outward expression in the form of Jesus has forever changed us. For that we are and we always will be most decidedly grateful. In Christ's name we pray.